Welcome to this week's podcast. My name is Mickey Badlamenti, and I'm the discipleship pastor here at Rock Point Community Church. Due to the coronavirus pandemic, we've modified our church schedule to help keep people safe. We currently offer on-site Sunday morning services at 9 and 11 a.m. with limited capacity, and we ask that you register ahead of time. Please visit www.rockpoint.org slash register before you join in person. That way we can save your seat. And we also live stream the 11 a.m. service on our YouTube channel. You can always find Rock Point on Facebook or visit the website for more information, including important schedule updates. And while COVID may have affected how we do church, it cannot diminish our efforts together to be the church. We look forward to connecting with you. Enjoy the podcast. Good morning. Um, a few quick thoughts for you. One is, uh, those of you that knew Steve Gill, he was our children's pastor from years back, and uh, he and Kisa um, established a church in Florida a couple of years back, they, and we've continued to support them. They uh, were not able to meet um, for probably the last eight to ten months, I think it is. And today will be two things. Now it will be their first time gathering together as a congregation on site in about ten months. Um, but they're also going to be in a new structure um, that is going to be hopefully a, a home for them for quite some time. So just wanted you to be aware of that and conscious of that. And Steve and I exchanged some things today. Um, Joe Straub, one of our members, also passed away today, so we want to keep that in mind. And so before we get into anything, if you just join me in prayer, please. Lord, first of all, I lift up the family of Joe, and I pray, God, that you would encourage and strengthen them during this time, and that you just, we just pray blessing upon them. Uh, Lord, we pray right now for our sister church in Florida with Steve and Kisa, Turning Point Church, and I pray, God, that today would just be a really blessed time for them with a sense of your presence and an encouragement to them, Lord, as they continue to move on. Lord, we recognize in this season that there are still tithes and offerings uh, being placed before you, whether that's been online or in boxes in the back here during a gathering here, and so we want to recognize that, and I ask your blessing upon those who have given, but we ask, Lord, also that you would use these things, that you'd guide us in how these things can be best used for your purposes. We thank you, Lord. You are gracious, and you have been ever so kind to us in this whole season of time. And so we thank you and we ask, Lord, that you'd speak to us in this gathering right now. In Jesus' name, amen. Most of you, or some of you probably, I would say probably most of you were not aware that Mickey was supposed to be speaking today. Um, I had stepped away for a little bit of time uh, for really two reasons. I'll explain that in a little bit of time. But when the events happened um, over a week ago now on Wednesday, uh, my mind immediately ended up back in here, and so I uh, came back a little bit earlier from the time I had um, because I wanted to address some things to you today, uh, both in regards to that and other things that have been happening around us for quite some time. Um, as I processed this, I, I had three different things that I wasn't sure until recently whether they were all supposed to be part of this conversation or three different ways of saying the same thing or three separate items. I've come to the conclusion that it's three separate items. And so, as I begin here today, this is going to be a series entitled, No Other. Um, now, as I got into this, I was talking with one of the staff because of the content today, and I said, well, it may be no other 
uh, series because uh, there may be no other series after that. After today, I may be gone, okay? Um, this title today is No Other Cross. And Mickey spoke last week about the cross. And I want to break that down a little bit more in detail. In Galatians chapter 6, it says, May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. There's something that's separating us from the world, this cross of Christ. Something of the world is dead to us, and we are dead to the world. 1 Corinthians, the writer continues on and says, And so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And then he breaks it even more in in understanding in Colossians chapter 1. For God was pleased to have all His fullness dwell in Him, in Jesus Christ. And through him, Jesus Christ, to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood, Christ shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God, and you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now God, he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firmed, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. Our hope is to be in the gospel. Nothing else is to be in the gospel. It goes on in 1 John chapter 2. Do not love this world nor the things it offers you. For when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. For the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure a craving for everything we see, and pride in our achievements and possessions, these are not from the Father, but are from this world. And this world is fading away, along with everything that people crave. But anyone who does what pleases God will live forever. When I heard and was watching on the news what took place in the Capitol. I found it to be you know, pretty disturbing, as I think most of us did. We've never really had a moment quite like this in our nation. The Capitol itself, the last time it had that kind of violation was by our cousins, uh, the British, in our little family squabble that we call the War of 1812. There was actually a time when the first battle of the Civil War was fought just outside Washington, and there was such concern that uh, the rebels would enter the Capitol that a number of people volunteered actually to go to the Capitol building to defend it in the case that were to happen. Now, there are some who I've seen who have stated the feeling and the thought that why should this be any different, and they're trying to juxtapose this to the violence that has happened in Portland and Dallas and Minneapolis and all the rioting that took place and said, why is this any different? And I understand the thinking of it. 
there's something about symbols that are extremely important. Symbols move us in a way that um, is really unparalleled. When the 9-11 attackers unleashed their assault upon America, they focused very specifically on symbols knowing that that would have an impact upon us. Targeting the Twin Towers was an attempt to target our economic power and the symbols of that. Um, the attacks upon the Pentagon was to attack our, the symbol of our military power. Flight 93, which was uh, taken down apparently by the passengers short of its target, was believed to have targeted the Capitol, possibly the White House, but they believe it was the Capitol, to again target a symbol of American democracy and of our identity. So having the Capitol violated as it was in this circumstance has a symbolism and an impact upon the American psyche, um, unlike uh, Portland, Minneapolis, and some of the other places, not to minimize those in any way. To see a Confederate flag floating along inside the place that the Confederates never, ever penetrated. To see a police officer, a person of the law, being beaten by a pole with an American flag attached to it. All these had an impact upon us. Symbols matter. So, if you will bear with me on the next few moments, as I attempt to contextualize this by covering roughly 2,000 years of history in a few moments' time. Again, bear with me, because again, this may be my last message. So, what do you got to lose? Back in the 600s, not the 1600s, the 600s, there was a man who was in a cave when, in his perspective, um, the angel Gabriel came to him and gave him a revelation. Out of this revelation, he established a new faith, and he proceeded from that time in 623, roughly or so, to advance that faith by military means. He conquered territories. His followers helped him to conquer territories, and they became a significant force by military conquest of this new faith. Eventually, this faith covered uh, the Arabian Peninsula, most of the Middle East, North Africa, uh, a significant portion of the south of Spain. It advanced in Europe up to Vienna. Eventually, there was a response to it. And this response is referred to as the Crusades. The Crusades were a series of religious wars that were launched by Christians in the West against Islam. These assaults continued between 1096 and 1291, so for a period of about 200 years. And um, we can discuss warfare and its rightness or wrongness is a separate issue. But these crusades were particularly violent and bloody and as self-seeking and in the same methodology as the enemy that they sought to subdue. 
In fact, it could be argued that they actually took upon themselves the methods of their opponent in that they declared it to be a holy war. Now, there's discussion as to whether Islam is, is peaceful or not. That can be an ongoing discussion. But there can be no argument historically that if you go to the roots of Islam, that it was initially launched in warfare. That's just a historical fact. The Christians, in responding to that clash of cultures, didn't just take on warfare, which could be argued or not argued. They specifically took on the mantra of a holy war. They were directed by the priests, by the ones to do this. Um, it was said, in fact, that if you engaged in the Crusades, that you took the cross. So to take the cross in this time period was to um, appropriate a bright red cross upon your clothing and to go to holy war against your enemies for which they were not to be spared at all. In fact, there was such savagery from the crusaders and such violence uh, that when they actually conquered Jerusalem, they killed women, children, uh, Muslims and Christians alike. Among those who are followers of Islam, the crusaders to this day are regarded as immoral, bloody, and savage. In the ruthless, widespread massacre of Muslims, Jews, and others non-Christians have resulted in a bitter resentment that persists even to this day, and Christianity is in many ways defined to them by this. Now, the discussion whether Islam is peaceful or not, I'll leave them to decide, but again, historically, if they were to go to their roots, they could say, well, it's in warfare. Christianity, though, and the Crusades couldn't say that. Now, the Crusaders, for the most part, never read the Bible because it was only in the hands of the priests. And so very few of them would have read the Bible. And in a conversation I had recently with one of my sons while I was gone in this season, the discussion came up as to how I interpret the Bible. What methods do I use and how do we do that? Because isn't it possible that, you know, we can have multiple different interpretations of the same thing? How do we know it's true and, and how, can, uh, how can it be understood? And my response to that was that there are some things that I think are very clear in their understanding that I don't think needs a ton of interpretation. When Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth, or blessed are the merciful, uh, for they'll be shown mercy. He's making it clear that meekness and mercy is, is a good thing. When he goes on in that same chapter to say, you have heard that it was said, love your enemy and hate your, uh, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Those things are pretty clear. And while the crusaders would not maybe have known the Bible in detail enough to have been students of it, they absolutely would have known the life of Christ in the same that Islamists would have known the life of the person who launched their faith. They would have known the life of the apostles. They would have known that Christ sacrificed himself on a cross rather than to kill people. That the apostles, all of them except for one, died rather than foment violence. That in fact Christianity for the first 300 years of its existence 
was at no time culturally dominant. In fact, that there was no attempt to even become culturally dominant until the 300s when uh, in Rome they eventually became the dominating force and at that point began to actually, could be argued, lost the way of faith and the way of the Scripture. If we are to look at these Scriptures, if we are to make these things be real that are the beginning and core of our faith, not how it has mutated or changed, but what originally was taught and given to us as an example, then this should change how we operate. If we read in Scripture things like Ephesians chapter 6 where it says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms, then that makes it clear to us that we are not dealing with people in harsh fashions of warfare, but instead we're coming against something spiritually. That in fact we are not warring against the demonic, twisted force that we define as the Democratic Party or the cynical, rapacious, um, whatever you want to say, aspect of the Republican Party. And hopefully you're understanding I'm using hyperbole in both of these situations. But instead that, that we're dealing actually with a spiritual force that wars against our very soul. The dominance of Christian thought in this nation is coming to an end if it has not, in fact, already ended. And there are those of us that are so caught with that and felt that we had such a right to be so culturally dominant that we forget that we are to be first and foremost um, followers of Christ and of His ways. We forget that the majority of our brothers and sisters live in countries where they are not the cultural dominant force. We just feel the resentment of losing the influence and power that we have become used to. I mourn the passing of that. But we need to be careful how far we are willing to go in addressing the passing of that. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. When Peter draws his sword in the garden, Jesus makes it clear that that is not the way to address things that there is a different fashion. Symbols are important. They evoke something. So let me walk you through something in um, my last message here. There is a symbol that goes back 13,000, no, yay, 15,000 years is its earliest rendition that we have in human culture. It has been used by multiple cultures around the world it was incredibly popular in the uh, early 1900s. It meant prosperity or blessing or good fortune, and um, 
it was something that uh, was so broadly used, particularly in the East, uh, but throughout, and even in America, this symbol of good fortune and of well-being. Um, it was used in Roman times. It was used, and you'll find it in uh, church, Christian church artwork. Greek, Roman, Indian, etc. It became so popular that Coca-Cola used it in the 30s. Carlsberg used it on their beer bottles. The Boy Scouts adopted it, and the Girl Scouts, or Girls Club of America, called their magazine by the name of this symbol. They would even send out uh, little badges to their girls and their young readers of this symbol of well-being for selling copies of the magazine. It was used by American military units in World War I. Let me show you a picture of a Roman mosaic from centuries back and see if you begin to pick up what this symbol is. Or perhaps the crypt of a bishop of the Church of England, and if you look at the collar around him inscribed with this symbol, and if you still haven't picked it up, let me give you some examples from American history in the 1930s and 1920s of a fruit company, of a pack of playing cards, of Coca-Cola that they passed out to children. And see if somewhere in here you begin to recognize this symbol. At one point in time, a somewhat twisted individual in Germany created a flag for his nationalist movement by taking this symbol, tilting it slightly, and taking the colors of imperial Germany and creating this thing. This is the symbol that for 13, yea, 15,000 years throughout civilization had meant well-being, good things, positive health and well-being, a symbol of luck. This is that symbol that now has been so ravaged and damaged by its misuse that one person writes in their book, The Swastika, symbol beyond redemption. This symbol that you'll find on church floors, this symbol that is um, one of a broken cross has now been corrupted to such a degree that to see it is to evoke a sense of revulsion, a good symbol that is now so twisted and damaged that there are those that believe it's beyond redemption. I was not able to properly mourn my father two years ago when he passed. I had the unusual circumstance of actually doing my own father's for, uh, funeral. I had issues about his affairs and my mother and my sisters to provide for, and so I took this time recently, not just as a break, but as an attempt to go to where he died and to reconcile that in my own mind. As I was there and as these events were unfolding, I was reminded of my father's last words to me, literally before he died. His very last words were to, a statement to me to, quote, be a true soldier of the cross. Now, as I look at that phrase, even though I know he is, was, 
a deeply patriotic American, one who had uh, fought in World War II, um, very strong in his faith. Uh, even though I know passages that were being evoked by this statement, like Second Timothy, where Paul's stating to his son of the faith, endure suffering along with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Even though I had sung with him passionately songs like Onward Christian Soldiers Marching as to War with the Cross of Jesus going on before, I knew that when he was saying this to me that he was not imploring me to go out and have a cultural domination fight or to overwhelm someone physically with my might. And that when he's talking about the cross, that it was not the cross of the crusaders that he was talking about. That there was something deeper. He was not discussing the cross of the crusaders, nor was he discussing the cross that has been taken and used um, to place on people's lawns as a symbol of, of racial hatred. Nor was he talking about the broken cross of nationalism. But instead, he was talking about the cross of Jesus Christ. We do not have as Islam does, the scales of Allah as our symbol. The scales of Allah weigh the merits of a person, and you will not find until you have died as to whether you have done enough acts of merit to be permitted to come into heaven. No one knows until they die. What we have instead is the cross of Jesus Christ, the good news of mercy to the undeserving, the symbol of provision and release and grace. These symbols are drastically different. And again, I want to take this moment to review that, whether that is the cross of the crusaders, which they would have worn, whether it is the cross of intimidation and racism, or whether, and I don't even want to show it again, the broken cross of nationalism. And we need to understand that Nazism was popular with Christians in Germany. Germany after World War I was regarded as a godless, secular, materialistic republic which betrayed all of Germany's traditional values and religious beliefs. Christians saw the social fabric of the community unraveling, and the Nazis promised to restore order by attacking godlessness, homosexuality, abortion, liberalism, prostitution, pornography, obscenity, and so forth. Those are not the crosses or the cross that we're to follow. The cross in Christianity represents something profoundly different. It is to represent fulfilled prophecies of centuries. 
It was to represent love, hope, healing, salvation. It was to bring people together from different nations, understandings, and beliefs to come together as brothers and sisters. The preeminent element of the cross, to be honest, is not onward Christian soldiers, but rather a song that was sung years ago, they will know we are Christians by our love. And one of the questions I would raise up this morning in this time is simply this. Those who propagated German nationalism took a symbol that had meant something good throughout all of mankind for thousands of years and turned it into something that was so twisted and ugly that there's questions as to whether it can be redeemed ever again. Jesus Christ took a symbol of shame and death in the cross and took that symbol and by his love and his sacrifice and his grace transformed it into something that was a symbol of hope and healing and salvation. And the question I have today is whether or not we as Christians, particularly in this nation of America, have been guilty of acting in such a way that that cross increasingly has come to mean something darker and uglier. I do not think it is too late to redeem this. I think it is still something that if we are conscious of and if we realize what it's about, that we can change that, that we can renounce the crusader cross of dominance, culturally or otherwise, that we can renounce the burning cross of racism to intimidate or destroy, that we can set aside the bent, hooked cross of nationalism, and then instead that we still have time to once again fully and truly embrace the cross of Jesus Christ, the one that means healing and hope and salvation, the one that a generation past sung about when it said on a hill far away stood an old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and shame. And I love that old cross where the dearest and best for a world of lost sinners was slain, where we would understand that to be a soldier of the cross is not to assail other people, but is to sacrifice our lives for others, that we would embrace the cross of Christ and no other cross. I say to you again that we would embrace truly the roots of our faith and the cross of Jesus Christ and no other cross. And it is to that reason that I have come back early from my time away to speak to you 
and to implore you in your speech, in your actions, in what you choose to support, in your posts, and in your forwards, that the crusader, the nationalists, the racial intimidation, whatever those are, and those are just a sampling of few, would be set aside. And that we would embrace and follow the roots of our faith by our founder, the cross of Jesus Christ. And no other cross. And so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, that I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus. through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Next week, we'll continue on with the second part of this series, assuming I'm still here. Lord, our culture has invaded so much of who we are as a church that we have forgotten our beginnings and our roots even as the crusaders did and Lord I pray that we would not take on the methods of our opponents as they did that we would not present some distorted perception of you your cross or our faith I pray Lord that even as the culture slips away that we would be held by our hope in you. I pray this would lead to a time of self-reflection upon us as your people. And to this degree, I commit your church, this gathering of people, um, to that end. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.